All right, seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. We are going to start today with a straightforward confession. Uh, not my straightforward confession uh, this time. Um, this is... Do you remember Larry the Cucumber and Bob the Tomato? How many of you had, was VeggieTales a part of your either growing up experience or... Yeah, so if you grew up in the evangelical church in the 90s or the 2000s, you probably know these characters. They're two of the main characters in the computer-generated musical children's animation VeggieTales. This media franchise was created by Phil Vischer in 1993, and there, it's even, like, it's still on Netflix. There's still uh, versions of it out there today. And at the height of its success in the late 90s, they sold 7 million videos in a single year and generated $40 million in revenue. And I must say that, you know, at, at, when, when I grew up at Christ Memorial Church, like, that was our preferred, like, our preferred fun thing at the end of youth group night was to, was to get to watch a VeggieTales. Uh, we, were real, we, were real, we were real cool. We were all first kids. <laughs> in youth group. Yes, Matthew, in youth group. Our youth leaders kind of looked at us a little strange. but Anyway, so for decades, kids in Christian homes have seen fruit and vegetable characters retelling Christian stories from the Bible with episodes telling life lessons from a biblical worldview. And so for some kids, the first time they encountered David and Goliath's story is by watching Dave and the Giant Pickle. Um, In terms of production value, they're really well done. They're really well done. But here's a quote from Phil Vischer back in a 2011 World Magazine interview. Uh, He wrote, he said, I look back at the previous 10 years and realized I had spent 10 years trying to convince kids to behave Christianly without actually teaching them Christianity. And that was a pretty serious conviction. You can say, hey kids, be more forgiving because the Bible says so, or hey kids, be more kind because the Bible says so, but that isn't Christianity, it's morality. So Phil Vischer, starting out wanting to, wanting to teach kids the gospel, spent 10 years doing what he was doing and came to the realization 10 years later that he had not taught kids the gospel. He had taught them morality. You say, what's the difference? Morality is do this and live. The gospel in Christianity says, Jesus has done, therefore live. Uh, so it's, very, it's actually very different. It's possible to read the Bible, but to do it incorrectly. Liberal Christians, you know, I'm not talking political liberalism here, you understand, not theological liberals. Theological liberals, like, they deny the gospel, but they may still want some Christian morals, but they intentionally, or they, they intentionally, you know, read the Bible in a way that it's not supposed to be read. Um, but evangelical Christians can do this too. We do it by accident. We're not intending to say, well, I'll take the Bible and make it what I want. Uh, but we, we think it's God's word, and we want it to say to us what, it isn't, what God intends to say. But unintentionally, we can still twist its meaning. No one in this room, I imagine, wants to misread the Bible. But unfortunately, sometimes we do, especially the Old Testament. And so we need to see that a moral code of behavior 
do this, do this, do this. You know, share your toys if it's toward kids. You know, share your toys. Be kind to other people. Um, don't lie. Don't steal. That teaching them that without teaching the foundation of Jesus and the gospel uh, is not reading the Bible correctly. The essence of Christianity is the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. And what we're going to talk about in this course, how that is true of the whole Bible, not just the New Testament. So if you think about your Bibles, right, you know, a good portion of it is Old Testament, right? All of this is before Jesus came. This is after Jesus came. So what are we supposed to do with all of this? And our intention in this course is to show you how all of this is about Jesus just as much as all of this is about Jesus. So we don't want to teach Christian morality without teaching Christianity. We want to teach the gospel whenever we open our Bibles, wherever we open our Bibles to. Um, We do not want to give just the law, do this, without the gospel. Jesus has done this. So the Bible without Jesus at its center is really a different book teaching a different religion. And we want to understand in this course how to see Jesus in all the Bible. Um, And this is what Jesus has actually taught us to do. So I'd like you to turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, which is the Sermon on the Emmaus Road. This is an absolutely foundational passage. It really does reveal the major interpretive key to understanding how to read all of Scripture. And this is, this is a, an amazing encounter between the risen Jesus and two disciples, one of whom's named, his name is Cleopas, and the other is not named. Um, but Jesus is actually, this is, this is Easter Sunday, in the, probably in the afternoon, late afternoon, and Jesus has already appeared to Mary Magdalene, he'd already appeared to Peter. Uh, now he's going to appear to these two disciples on the Emmaus Road. And it's going to sh- Jesus here has a very intentional point in his encounter with these two, these two folks, which is to show them uh, about the scriptures. So let's read, I want to read verses, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, right, risen from the dead, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation you are holding with one another as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? (laughs) And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. And yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. 
Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. So, what's their situation? They are walking along with Jesus himself, confused and sad because they don't know what's going on, realizing that he had died three days earlier. This is now the third day. And there's reports from the women that they've seen him alive, and yet they don't know what's going on. So they're surprised at Jesus' suffering. They're shocked that he would have died. We were hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. And now all that program seems to be you know, defunct because Jesus has died. For them, that's a real problem, that Jesus has died. It seems to undo everything of their expectation of him. So they're surprised by Jesus' suffering, and they're, and they're spiritually blind. This not being able to recognize him, they're being kept by God from recognizing him, is a symbol of the fact that they still aren't getting it. Thanks, Chris. Morning. So they have, they have spiritually blind eyes. They also have slow hearts. Read on in verses 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this is, this is not like, hey guys, you know, I got some good news for you. Right? Everything's going to be okay. He, he issues them a pretty stern rebuke, calling them foolish and slow of heart to believe what the prophets have spoken. So he actually holds them accountable for the fact that they're in this confused state that they're in right now. They ought not to be. They ought not to be. They ought, ought to have been able to recognize these things, but they can't. They haven't. So the Old Testament prophets he says, foretold that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into glory. But their hearts are slow, their eyes are blind, and they're not able to see what Jesus is saying is very, very clear in the Old Testament scriptures. Jesus is saying, you ought to have seen it. So he goes, and he starts right at the very beginning of the Bible with the law, He goes through Moses, starts with Moses and all the prophets, right? So he starts in the law, goes through all the prophets, and he's interpreting them that they're all about him. He speaks to them about the things in them concerning himself, right? So now that's our burden in in what we're going to see is how are the things in the Old Testament, how ought they have to see these things as revealing the work of the Messiah, and specifically his suffering and his glory. So that would have been a pretty... So Emmaus is about about two and a half hours by by walking. So this is a two and a half hour sermon now that he gives them to explain how all the scriptures, and we all wish we could have a transcript of that sermon, but we don't. Um, But uh, he walks them through the Old Testament and helps them to see how it's all speaking of him. And what's the result? Look at 28. So they drew near to the village where they were going. He acted as if he was going further, but they strongly urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. 
When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told him what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So as soon as he breaks the bread, their eyes are open. They recognize Jesus, but he vanishes out of their sight. So this opening of the eyes was not really a physical opening. It's not like they were physically you know, blind or, or hard of, hard of uh, sight, but it's a spiritual opening. He's just given them spiritual sight to see him in the scriptures, and now he's given spiritual sight. they're given spiritual sight to see him right in front of them. So, And as they reflect on this sermon that they've just heard from him as he's explained these things on the road, they, they talk about how their hearts burned within them. And they didn't know yet even that Jesus was the one who was talking to them. But as they heard the scriptures interpreted afresh by the Lord Jesus, and they began to see that everything that God has ever done, everything that God has ever said is focused on the work of the Messiah, their hearts burned within them. And that's the thing that we want too, right? When we come to the scriptures, what do we want? We want to see in the scriptures the Lord Jesus. And we want to have our hearts burn in our affections. We want to have open eyes ourselves and burning hearts every time. I want that to be the case for you every time you open the Old Testament. That that's what that's that that your heart would burn, that your eyes would see the Lord Jesus. So then they they come back to Jerusalem. He even he even then appears among them. And we're not going to read this, but he appears to the whole company of disciples now. And he they're not sure exactly what's going on. He says, "Can I have a piece of fish?" And he eats the fish in front of them and says, "Yeah, guess what? I'm not a ghost. I'm really me. I'm really back from the dead. I really see my hands, my feet, my side." Right? And then he says, "Go down and read." Verses 44 and verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer And on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father, that's the Holy Spirit, upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So he actually is using some technical language. He He says, everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms. And if you remember, we actually talked about this in the last course. The Old Testament, the Jewish reading of the Old Testament was to divide the Old Testament into three sections. You have the Law of Moses, you have the Prophets, which includes the history books, and then you have the Writings, which is the, the books of wisdom and some other stories. So, and in, so the wisdom section can also be referred to by its first and foremost book, which is the book of Psalms. So he's basically saying the Law... The prophets and the psalms and the writings, that's everything that they had. It's all talking about me and what I was going to do. And it's amazing, you know, 
you know, look at the, 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 the specifics of what he says is written. He's, it's written that the Christ should suffer, that he should rise on the third day. Now, I, I would submit to you, you can read the whole New Testament, and there's never a time where it says, you know, thus says the Lord. The Messiah will be, will be, cru- will be crucified. Well, yeah, I mean, not even crucified. The Messiah will suffer, and then on the third day, he will rise again from the dead. There just isn't a prophecy that says that. And yet Jesus is saying, it's written of me that I would rise on the third day. So we've got to figure out, if that's what Jesus is saying, that's for sure what's happening. We're going to look and see how it's happening. Right? So, um, let's see. Yeah, so he, so uh, that, that slide just, uh, I, I moved too fast, right? There's the law, the first five books. There's the prophets, the former prophets, and the latter prophets. And then the writings, that's the Psalms. And Jesus is saying they're all about me. All about me. All right. So, here's the significance. If we want to read the, the Bible the way Jesus read the Bible, and if we want to read the Bible the way that Jesus taught his disciples how to read the Bible, then we should read the Old Testament expecting to see Jesus all over the place. We should expect the Old Testament to promise and picture and point to and proclaim Jesus, and specifically his suffering and his triumph, his death and his resurrection. That's what Jesus says the Bible is about, the Old Testament is about. So we are going to do our best to recreate parts of that sermon with a little help in this course because we want to give you, you know, we want to help your eyes. And a lot of you have been, have, are, are beginning, have been used to reading the Bible in this way. But some of you maybe not have, haven't had as much, much experience of reading the Bible this way. But all of us can be helped to get our vision clearer and clearer. So this is kind of a spiritual LASIK surgery so that we, because we want to see Jesus with 20-20 vision and clearly see his death and his resurrection all over the Old Testament. Because as we've been hearing about in 1 Corinthians and how BJ's going to preach again today, it's all about the cross. It's all about the cross. And what we need to see is it's always been about the cross. It's always been about the cross. It's not like it just started to be about the cross when Jesus died. Abraham is about the cross. David is about the cross. Noah is about the cross. Daniel's about... Like, it's... They've been trusting in the crucified and risen Messiah all the way up to this point, and they're all speaking about the crucified and risen Messiah. Now, so when BJ and I preach out of the Old Testament and we show you, say, say I preach out of Nehemiah 6, like I did at, uh, at, um, down at uh, Medfield First Baptist Church last week, and we show you how a passage like that is about Jesus, I don't want you to go, wow. That's amazing. I'd never have thought of that. I want you to be able to say, wow, that's amazing. I totally see that. And even as the preacher's preaching, that you're like, oh, I bet it's going to look like this. I bet this is how it's going to be shaped like Jesus. Right? So it's not just that we want to teach you these things, though, of course, we do. We want you to be able to do that work yourself and to be able to look at the Old Testament and see how it's about Jesus. And this, is, this course is designed to give you some tools. So it's just how Jesus himself read the Old Testament. Don't we want to do the same? All right, here are some sincere but misguided attempts to read or teach the Bible, which happen 
not, not intentionally, but do happen. So if Jesus is, over the old, is all over the Old Testament, why do we have trouble seeing him? And the most fundamental reason that we have trouble seeing him in the Old Testament is that we struggle to read him with the eyes of faith. Just like they needed to have their spiritual eyes open, so do we. But when we've trusted in Jesus, why is he still sometimes obscured from our vision? Four reasons why this happens, I would say, even in Bible-believing churches, among Bible-believing folk. Number one, scattered stories. Scattered stories. Oftentimes, we read the Bible, or what, when we're taught the Bible, we jump around to different parts, right? And even in our church, we, have, we, do, we often preach from a book in the Old Testament, and then we switch back to the New Testament, and then we go back to the Old, because we're wanting to give a variety of, of uh, t- teachings. We're not just starting in Matthew and then going on to Mark and then on to Luke. So we're, we're going at different parts of the Bible. We talk about Nehemiah, then we talk about John the Baptist, we talk about Jacob and Esau, and then the Apostle Paul, and back to Elijah. And it's, there's nothing wrong with that, but if, if these scattered stories are given in isolation from each other then it's hard to see the whole. Because the Bible is an anthology of co- and collection of many books from many authors, but we remember that it's one book. Remember? How did we say that we integrate the human and the divine factor in the, the writing of the scripture? Yes, individual human authors writing all the way along. What's over the top of that? One divine author telling one big story. So we need to see the big story. The big story of the Bible can be summarized by creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, or new creation. And that's the big story that all the little stories fit into. And who's at the center of this story? What's at the center of this story? Jesus and the cross. Right? So it's kind of like, you know, how, you know how the old phrase, all roads lead to Rome? It's, it's kind of true. This is a map of the modern day major roads within Europe. What do you notice? They're, it's, it's like, it's like uh, all the it's like arteries, right, that are branching in and, and, and to bigger and bigger, bigger and bigger, or, or small streams and tributaries that are flowing. And where's the, where's the focus? It's, it's all the way to Rome, and that's because of the historical reality that this was, this was the center of the, of the European world at, at, at one time. And so what we're trying to do is wherever we are in Scripture, you know, whether we're over here in Genesis, or if we're over here in First Chronicles, or if we're over here in Ezra, or if we're down here in the Psalms, we need to, we're looking to see how, how is what I'm reading right now fitting into the great big river of God's plan, creation, fall, redemption in Christ, restoration through Christ, right? Because ultimately, we're trying to get to, not Rome, but we're trying to get to Jesus and the cross. It always is connecting to Jesus and the cross. No matter how far it may seem, it's always got a connection. It's always flowing downstream cross. All the little stories of the Bible contribute to the one big story. And if we read any part of the Bible in isolation from the big story, we miss the main point. So we can't just take our individual Bible reading for the day and read it as if it's disconnected from the main story. 
Any questions about that? Or any questions about anything I've said so far? I've been, I've been monologuing, so that doesn't necessarily help get questions going. All right, now we wouldn't, re we wouldn't read a novel like this, right? You wouldn't sit down and read Anna Karenina and start on page 35 and then skip to page 110 and then to, you know. But we do that in the scriptures because it's a different kind of literature. But we don't, we still don't want to miss the idea that we've got one main story. So they're not just disconnected stories. Second way that we can misread the Bible is self-improvement lessons. You know, Christianized versions of Aesop's fables, right? You know, they're just written to teach us a moral lesson. Who's the good guy or who's the bad guy and what should I do? You know, so, ooh, Saul was bad. Saul was really bad. Don't be like Saul. You know, David was really good. Well, where? Okay, yeah, this story, not that story. <laughs> be, like, be like David. This is the Veggie Tales. This is the same problem as the Veggie Tales. Be like Joseph. He fled temptation. You should flee temptation too. Be like Daniel. He had courage to stand up to the king and was willing to die. You should be courageous like him. Be like Solomon. He was wise. You should be wise. He had 900 wives. Oh, wait. Um, in our, <laughs> no, what, is, what was it? Three, 300 wives, 700 concubines, 1,000. He had 1,000 wives. So, yeah, don't do that. Uh, maybe you even sprinkle in some Jesus, right? Be like Jesus. He fled temptation. Joseph fled temptation. Jesus overcame temptation. You should overcome temptation too. Now, there is a, there is a real sense. I mean, 1 Corinthians 10 says the things in the Old Testament were written for our example. There are times when we're supposed to take warnings or uh, encouragement from what's going on with the Old, Old Testament saints. But it's not just... It's not just imitative. Be like so-and-so. Don't be like so-and-so. Because those things... Yeah, there's Aesop's fable. Be the tortoise, not the hare. Um, oops, that's too far. Um, we don't want to miss the gospel. We can't talk about Jesus without the cross and resurrection on behalf of our sin. If we just talked about Jesus' example without talking about his atoning work, right? can, can the message... Be like Jesus in isolation. Can that save you? Can that save anybody? It can't. Is it possible for a sinful child of Adam to be like Jesus apart from the work by which he died and rose again? That's, that's absolutely impossible. We must talk wherever we are in the Bible about Jesus dying to pay for our sins and empower us to obey through the cross and resurrection. Otherwise, we're just giving people law without the gospel. You look at the law, you look at godly examples, and you say, I can't do that. I can't do that. And yeah, that's right. You can't do that. Only Jesus can. But if you trust in him, he'll pay for your sin, and then he'll give you the Holy Spirit to enable you to obey. But that comes not through imitation, be, like, be more like Jesus, it comes through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Never without Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We can't skip over the gospel. We mustn't skip over the gospel. So when Jesus says, I came among you, or Paul says, when I came among you, intent to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified, does that mean he wasn't talking about the Old Testament? 
He wasn't talking about the scriptures that he had. No, he was preaching the scriptures everywhere he went. The scriptures as he had them, the Old Testament, but he was saying that is about Jesus and the cross. So moralism without salvation is, impress- is oppressive, and it's not the gospel. You remember in uh, Pilgrim's Progress, what happens when, when Christian leaves the path and listens to Mr. Worldly Wiseman and goes to the town of morality, to the house of Mr. Legality, and what happens? What does he find? Does he find rest for his soul? No, he finds a, an enormous mountain thundering with flashes of lightning and saying, and, uh, he's, he finds Mount Sinai and he, he's crushed underneath its weight. Right? We can't just be told, do this. Another way that sometimes the Old Testament is talk, taught is what I might call a synagogue sermon. There's a picture of a Jewish synagogue. If you went to a Jewish synagogue, you, of course, would hear the Old Testament taught, right? You would hear the, what they would consider the Tanakh or their, the Hebrew Bible. They don't call it the Old Testament because they don't, have, they don't think there is a New Testament. Um, but it's the same content that we have in our Old Testament. They don't mention Jesus in, in their sermons or in their teaching because in their minds Jesus is not the Messiah. So they don't talk about Jesus. And sadly, in, our, in churches sometimes, we don't immediately see Jesus in the Old Testament story, so we don't talk about Jesus. It is possible that you've heard sermons based out of the Old Testament that never mentioned Jesus, talked a lot about God, but never even mentioned Jesus, and specifically didn't mention his redemptive work. Uh, it, sometimes we even think that if we reach into the New Testament, isn't that like cheating? Like when you're doing math, you're not supposed to go for the answers to the end of the book, right? The answer key's in the back of the book, but you're not supposed to actually use that to do the problem. But that's not how the, that's not how the, the scriptural interpretation uh, works. We need the answer key. We're supposed to use the answer key. That We're supposed to use Luke 24 to teach us how to read the Old Testament and... and uh, and we don't, we don't want to read the Old Testament like we're in a synagogue. If, if, if you hear me preach a sermon, if you hear BJ preach a sermon, and you, we could have heard that same sermon in the synagogue, then that's a problem. That's a problem. Because we don't just have religion. We don't just have God-based religion. We have God-based religion, the God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A last one, which gets closer to the mark, but still is, is, I would say, incomplete, is the idea that Jesus has sprinkled appearances through. There's sprinkled appearances either with the explicit prophecies about Jesus or even moments when Jesus may be appearing in the narrative even before he came to earth. Do you know the word Christophany? Christophany, uh, phony is like an, an appearance. This is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Some examples might be, do you remember it when uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into the fiery furnace? And what, what, what happens? They're protected. They don't die. But who appears with them? A fourth figure, which is described as like the son of the gods. That's how Nebuchadnezzar describes him. And, and that may well be Jesus before his incarnation appearing in that moment to save his people. Um, and there's, you know, maybe the, the, possibly the angel that wrestled with Jacob or uh, the, you know, uh, the appearance of the angel of the Lord to Samson's parents. There are different places in the Old Testament where we highly suspect that, some, that, that there's a manifestation of the pre-incarnate Jesus, you know, in some fashion to his people. 
Um, and, and that's fine. And then, of course, there are the explicit prophecies, like Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, are no, by no means least among the tribes of Judah, for from you will come one to rule my people Israel. Right? That's an explicit prophecy that the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem. Or Isaiah 53, explicit prophecies about the, the, um, about the sufferings of the Messiah. But if, if, if I don't think what Jesus was saying was, well, okay, here's how the law and the prophets are, are related to me. Look on page 46 and then skip forward to page 243, and I was there. And then we'll go forward. Ah, yeah, there was that little period where I wasn't there very much. So let's go to 425, right? It's not, it's not that there are these sprinkled appearances of Jesus. That's not what he was rebuking them for on the Emmaus Road. Like, oh, you didn't know that that guy in the fiery furnace was me. That's not what he's rebuking them for. It's much more pervasive than that. It's much more pervasive. Those things aren't wrong. They're certainly not wrong. But it's not how Jesus primarily was showing them how Jesus primarily appears in the Old Testament. He's talking about something much more pervasive, that everything's talking about his, um, his death, burial, and resurrection, not just a few obscure references. All right, how's our course going to be working? There's the fourth man in the furnace. Stories that we're going to do in our course. The, the elders are all going to teach this course, except BJ, who's a skyver. Um, we're going to do a skyver. Have, who's not read Harry Potter? You know, skiving snack boxes that get you out of class, right? So he he gets out of this course, so because he's got nothing to do, right? Bill, isn't that right? Peach's got Peach's not doing much, right? All right, we're gonna do Noah in the flood. Eric's gonna do Noah in the flood next week, unless he's forgotten. Uh, we're gonna do Abraham. Oh, right. <laughs> We're going to do Abraham and Isaac. We're going to go sequentially through, a little chronologically, Abraham and Isaac, Joseph and his brothers, Israel in the wilderness, David and Goliath, Jonah and the great fish, Daniel and the lion's den. We're picking familiar stories that you will already know. That means we don't have to spend a lot of time on the content. We can spend our time on the interpretation. And Now, how many of you recognize that there's veggie tales for just about all of these? <laughs> but did those veggie tales talk to you about Jesus? Maybe not, maybe not, maybe not. All right. Now, the structure of our, our lessons is going to be the same. Kind of every week's going to follow the same general pattern. We're going to look at the story, and then we're going to see possible blind readings of it. And readings that miss Jesus entirely. They completely miss Jesus, and specifically they miss his death, burial, and resurrection. They might be popular ways of reading the Old Testament stories, but they miss Jesus. They're spiritually blind. Or they could be synagogue readings that, that uh, would, be, would play just, just fine in the synagogue. Then we're going to look at some fuzzy readings. We're going to see an attempt to make a connection with Jesus. And it might be valid. It might really be valid. But there's something that's, that's still maybe out of focus or it's not as clear as it could be. Still a little fuzzy. And then we're going to look at 2020 readings where we can see Jesus and his work, his redemptive work, very, very clearly. So that's going to be the general structure of the course uh, for all those different stories. And, and here's, the, here's the significance. What's the upshot, right? Is this just so that you can impress your friends and, as if this was Bible party tricks? And of course it's not. 
it's, it's designed to revolu- revolutionize your reading of the Bible. Yeah, that guy's a little weird. I tried different pictures, but it's, it's get, you get the point, right? Open eyes. <laughs> Open eyes. You want it, we want to see Jesus, right? Isn't that, isn't that what the, the Greeks came? The Greeks came to him just after, uh, after he rides into Jerusalem, and they go up to, I think, Philip or maybe Andrew, and they say, Sir, we would see Jesus. And, you know, uh, it's, I, I think this is, I don't think, I think this is actually accurate. Spurgeon's pulpit had that engraved on it so that when he walked into his pulpit, Sir, we would see Jesus as a reminder to him that whatever he's preaching, whatever text he's preaching, the message that can save these people that are out there is the message of Jesus and the cross. So, we hope that this, can, this course can revolutionize your reading of the Bible, especially if you've never kind of seen this kind of thing. And, there's a corny little illustration, that it would reignite your love for Jesus as you see him in the Old Testament, right? Their hearts, their eyes were opened, but their hearts burned. And isn't that what we desire, right? So, so often we, we and, and yes, sometimes when you pick up your Bible and you read it, does it, does it strike a match to your, you know, do you, do you come away from the encounter just totally in flames? No, it, it, it's not always. But if, you, if your reading is connected, if you're reading in First Chronicles and you're seeing that this genealogy that you're reading is part of one of these arteries that's linking you down, linking you down to the Lord Jesus and the fact that he died for your soul to rescue you from sin and death. Right? That inflames the heart. And that's what we want. We want to see, have our, our love for Jesus ignited more and more over the course uh, of as we read the scriptures. So we want to see Jesus with as clear a vision as we can um, and so we're going to do it through these familiar stories. And you can certainly come to me and say, I, I give you a challenge, right? Um, uh, if you, we're going to deal with pretty basic stories. We're going to deal with big, big picture stories that people know. But if you have, if you're in the Old Testament and you're wondering, how on earth does this connect to Jesus? How on earth is this connected to the gospel? I would encourage you. Find, it, find that and bring it to me or bring it to BJ and say, listen, I'm just, Judges 19. Oh my goodness gracious. How, how on earth is this about Jesus and the cross? Well, it's actually very beautifully about Jesus and the cross, despite the cut up concubine and all the, the madness and malarkey that there was. It's actually a beautiful picture of Jesus and the cross. Uh, so, so do come with, like, oh, boy, I'm really struggling in this, in this particular uh, area of my reading, or I, I'm having di- real difficulty right here. Um, how is this about Jesus? Well, bring those questions, either in the class, if we've got a time when there's time. Um, yeah, we I probably would have been nice to build in a, a whole one just for you bring, you know, texts. Uh, but you can come to me individually. All right, we have a few minutes for questions. Uh, so what would you like to ask about uh, at this stage? Yeah, Matt.
Yeah, that's a good question. So say you're dealing with lying and and you just you just do, do, can you pull out if you will a, a bit of a rough and ready and show about, you know, uh, you know, so and so didn't lie, you know, told the truth and even in, even to their own hurt or something like that. Um, I think the answer is the law does help. The law always helps. So pulling out the example, an example from Scripture, and explaining to them through a story what the standard, what God's standard is, is fine. If, if, they, if you pull out the story of the Scripture, rightly interpreted, and it's showing them the deficiency of their behavior, you know, this is what you did, this is what God calls you to, you know, then that shows them the gulf between themselves and God and what God wants for them. And so that's fine. Why would you not take it one step further and say, and now, kiddo, can you see, you can't measure up. You know, you need a Savior. And the only way that you're actually going to be able to conquer this sin is through the power of Jesus. So I'm not sure if that's scratching what you're saying. I'm saying, so yeah, use use the example, but don't let it stay as example. You know, so all of the all of the Old Testament saints, we see their we see their virtue and we see their failures. And the failures keep us hungering for something better. And their virtues sometimes show us you know, point us to Jesus, who's the perfect one. So you're always trying to show your kids, you're not perfect, you're a sinner, and you need Jesus. So however you are going to use those stories to make that point, you know. So I don't think it's totally invalid to say, to use Noah, for instance, as an example of believing God's word. Right? Noah believed God's word and built an ark. Right? That's a pretty big show of faith. Now, do I think that's what Noah's Ark's whole trajectory is about? Not necessarily, but I think it's valid, and, and then you can and, and so you can use it. But you're always trying to get it downstream to the cross. Not parenting happens in the moment, right? So, not every not every interaction of correcting your children is going to result in a 20 minute theology lesson. So. But you're doing it in dribs, drabs. Yeah, Kenny. I would think that um, using the Bible as a correction, use for correction would be out of love, not out of anger. Like you're someone yell at your child for lying, and you say, "Look, God told you not to lie." That kind of brings a negative, uh, a negative thought towards the Bible. Would say, "Use you know, talk to them in love." Oh yeah. You're them. Your manner. There's no reason for your manner to be overbearing. Even if it's, yeah, 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 obviously, which doesn't mean that there's no place for sternness in parenting, but, you know, you, you don't yell at your Bible, Jesus did this, you know, Daniel did this, you know, that would be counterproductive. Yeah, Andrew.
I would not want to make a big distinction between the two things you just said. I think the connection to the broader narrative, let me go back to the... Um, this. There we go. I would say that connection to this story is connection to the cross, and there's no part of this, there's no part of scripture that's disconnected from this narrative. So can you, if you want to explain to me what you mean by the difference there, then I can maybe answer your question. I see what you say. I think I see what you're saying now. So, in a, the, the, for instance, in the Psalms, there are Psalms that are deemed messianic Psalms, like uh, ones that are more explicitly, like Psalm 22, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" Right? Is that a, is, is there a difference between a messianic passage and a passage that's connected? I think there. I think there are, but I want to kind of blur that line. I don't want to say, I actually would say this way, all the Psalms are messianic because they're all connected, they're all vitally connected, essentially connected to the story of Jesus and the cross. And so you're looking for those. But yeah, I do think there are explicit prophecies about, I mean, I think the Micah 5.2 passage is an explicit prophecy. Here's where the Messiah is going to be born. But there is not a passage that says the Messiah will rise on the third day. There are, as we're going to see, tons of passages which proclaim that Messiah will be born on the third day, but they're implicit, not explicit. So I would say, so, so I'm going to say that there's some that are more clear and some that are less clear, but they're all vitally linked. Yeah, follow up. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, uh, are you saying that the original intent to the original audience for all of the Old Testament was also messianic? Yeah, good question. So Andrew's talking about the gramma- grammatical, historical uh, understanding of Scripture, which is basically we're going to take the words of the text and we're going to read them and we're going to actually assume that they mean what they mean. And, you know, we're going to interpret it in its context, and we're going to do good literary work to come up with the meaning. And, I w- and, and so then the question is, did David, as he's writing Psalm 1, or, or we don't know who wrote Psalm 1, as he's writing Psalm 3, does he know he's writing about Jesus when he's writing about his own situation? And I think the answer is, us- is probably much more often than we would expect, right? You know, Moses wrote of me, Jesus says. You know, uh, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. I tend to think we don't give the Old Testament saints credit for clarity when I think they had a lot more clarity than they than we give them credit for. So I think they would be they would not be surprised. They would not, you know, Moses and David would not have received the rebuke on the Emmaus road because they would have seen that their story was connected to Jesus. We got to wrap up, but that, those are great questions, and I'm looking forward to this. Thank you very much, everyone.